0: Making disciples is a mandate that's been given to the church. It's also a mandate that the church cannot do, at least not by herself. There are a lot of things the church can do. We can build buildings, we can build budgets, we can build programs, we can build a staff of paid and volunteer leadership. But we cannot build disciples. You think to yourself, now wait a hot minute. For years you've been telling us that our mission is to make disciples for a global impact. Are you now gonna stand there and tell us that what you've been asking us to do for all these years, we actually can't do? And the answer is we can't do it, not by ourselves. If you ask the question, why can't we make disciples? The simple answer, we're not sovereign. Making disciples is God-sized work. We can't make people passionately pursue Jesus Christ. Only the Lord can do that. Now let me quickly add that consistently over the centuries, God has used the local church to make disciples. In fact, I'll go one step further. That God doesn't make disciples apart from the local church. If you are a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, you are discipled in and through the local church of our Lord. So we do exist to make disciples for a global impact. But let it be known, that's a mandate you and I cannot do ourselves. We can't do it by ourselves. Today we begin a new seven-part sermon series entitled Making Disciples. Over the next seven weeks or so, we are going to examine seven characteristics of God-built disciples. All seven of these characteristics come from the book of Psalms. And today it's appropriate for us to begin on the front porch of that ancient book. I invite you to draw your sword, turn to Psalm 1. Once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Because today we want to declare that a disciple is one who is dependent upon the word. A disciple is one who is dependent upon the word. Hear the words from Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of mockers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water, which yield its fruit in season, whose leaf does not wither, whatever he does prospers. Not so the wicked. They're like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. May God add his richest blessing to the reading, preaching, understanding, and obedience of his perfect word. You may be seated. The very first word of the 150 Psalms is the word blessed. It's an ancient word that means happy. In the Old Testament language of Hebrew, this first word is plural. To communicate that what is being discussed in Psalm 1 is supreme happiness. It's not just your garden variety of happiness. This is supreme happiness. It is possible for a person to live the blessed, happy life. Now, that's good news for you and for me, because everybody I know, they want to live a happy life, embedded in the fabric of our American culture. It is interwoven in our ancient documents, for our founding fathers said that we have some God-given tasks and responsibilities of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But the question must be asked, who gets to define Happiness. Do I get to define happiness? Do you get to define what is happiness? Does God get to have his say on the matter? Here in Psalm 1, the psalmist makes it abundantly clear. There is a path. There is a way to a happy life. And here in this psalm, we are given the roadmap of God's happiness to be lived out in your life and in mine. So the psalmist simply begins by saying, blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers. I want you to notice the verbs of verse 1. Walk, stand, and sit. All three of those verbs are perfect tense in the Hebrew language, which simply means it describes an action that took place in the past but carries present-day implications. When you see these three words put together in their totality, they communicate a paralytic effect of sin. Because this, uh, few, this, this one verse, these three verbs, they describe the downward debilitating spiral of sin. At first we walk in it, then we stand dead in our tracks, and then we sit immersed in our sinfulness. And here, the psalmist is simply describing the slow fade of sin. Sometimes the effect of sin in your life is is abrupt, it is overwhelming, it is simultaneous, but many times, sin is a slow fade, and we find ourselves walking in it, and then it is like quicksand, and we find ourselves stuck in it, standing still, and then we become overwhelmed by it, and we are sitting immersed in our circumstance it's the college student who goes to college and says you know there's really not a problem for me to go to the frat party and have an occasional drink I'm of age it's okay I'll do it but then what happened on Friday night becomes an everyday occurrence and then eventually it's not just an occasional drink on any given day of the week this college student is looking for the next party to get wasted at every opportunity Walking, standing, then sitting. It's like the woman who has some doubts about God. And she questions the validity of Christianity. But instead of going to God and godly people, she goes the way of the world. She goes the path of the sinners. And she gets her answers to her questions. They're not biblical answers. And yet, instead of doubts, then she becomes defiant towards God. And eventually, she gets to the point where she is so angry at God that she says, there's no way that God exists in my life. She went from walking to standing. To sitting. It's like that man who just had an occasional glance at pornography, and by his own words, he said what happened next was just a playful flirtation with a co-worker. And then eventually, it became a multi-year affair with his secretary. This man went from walking to standing to sitting. It's the nature of sin in your life and and mine. It's the path of the world. We try to find happiness according to the world, and when we try to find happiness according to the world, we will walk in the counsel of the wicked. We will stand in the way of sinners. We will eventually sit in the seat of mockers. But here, the psalmist says, from the very beginning, blessed is the man who doesn't do any of that. Blessed is the person who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of mockers this is the description of lot in genesis chapters 13 and 14 if you read those two chapters of genesis you will discover that lot looked towards sodom and then he set up his tent near sodom and then he was seated at the city gate with the elders in the cities of sodom and gomorrah In 2 Peter, the apostle says of Lot, he was a righteous man. Friends, if that can happen to a righteous man named Lot, that could probably happen to a righteous person like you or a righteous person like me. The psalmist says, Blessed is the person who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers. Verse 2, his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on that law, he meditates day and night. That word delight, it means passion. It, it means his desire. His delight is in the law of the Lord. The law of the Lord is the Bible. It's the scripture. This man's delight is in the, it's in the word of God. And on that law, he meditates day and night. Day and night is a mirrorism. It identifies the two extremes, To communicate totality, St. Augustine said that this reference to day and night implies in good times and in bad. When you're spiritually awake, when you're spiritually asleep, when things are going your way, when everything's not going your way, when you uh, have come out of the storm, when you're in the middle of the storm, day and night, this person meditates upon the scripture. That word meditate, it means to murmur means to mutter. It's the word picture of a, of a person walking down the street, speaking under his breath. You ever passed anybody doing that? I mean, you pass them and, and they're just, uh, just kind of talking under their breath. You don't really know what they're saying. They're just kind of, murmuring, but kind of muttering. You think to yourself, they're crazy, right? But here in Psalm 1, in verse 2, this describes the person who is meditating upon the scripture. He is, he is repeating the scripture. He is murmuring the scripture. It is rolling around in his heart, in his mind. It is tumbling from his lips. He is committing it to memory by repetition. You do realize that owning a copy of God's word is a relatively recent phenomenon With the invention of the printing press some 560 years ago, copying books, primarily the Bible, became much more feasible and financially economical because before the invention of the printing press, there were very few people that had scrolls of the scripture. The reason is because the scrolls were so expensive and even further still, a lot of people couldn't read. How foolish it would be to own a book that you don't even have the capacity to read. And so for most people, for thousands and thousands of years, the only way they had to have the scripture and and, and repeat the scripture is through memorization. And so they would meditate on the word. And they would walk up and down the street of everyday life, speaking under their breath, as the scripture was rolling over in their minds, because not only was the scripture going to be beneficial to them, but it was a scripture that had been handed down to them by their parents and their grandparents, and they had the charge of now giving it to their children and their grandchildren. And the only way they had the scripture was by memorizing the verses. This is the picture that the psalmist describes. Bless is the man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of mockers. But his delight, his passion, is in the law of God, the word of God, the scripture. And on that scripture, he meditates, he mumbles, he stumbles, he murmurs, he repeats it over and over again, both day and night. Let me ask you a question. If the only scripture you had was the scripture you committed to memory, how much of the Bible would you have in your heart and in your head? If all you had were the verses that you have memorized, how much of the Bible would you have in your heart and in your head? You and I, we've got to memorize the scripture. We've got to devour the scripture. We meditate upon the scripture. Ted Sisk was a faithful pastor of 25 years. He pastored Emmanuel Baptist Church in Lexington, Kentucky. He was Jane Ellen's pastor. He came out of retirement to marry Jane Ellen and me. Later in life, he suffered from macular degeneration. And that disease robbed his eyesight. In the final stages and seasons of his life, he was blind. His grown son, Paul, told me a story that one day he was visiting his mom and dad. Down the hallway, he heard his dad mumbling. Paul raced down the hallway. He went to the room where his father was seated. His father was seated in a chair in a completely dark room. His dad was staring at a wall, just mumbling. And Paul asked him, Dad? are you okay? Well, yeah, I'm doing fine. Well, dad, what are you doing? Well, son, isn't it obvious? I'm reading my Bible. Because in that moment, all he had were the verses he had committed to memory. Friend, Those verses that he had committed to memory all throughout his life and his ministry sustained him in the final stages of his life because he could not open his eyes and read the book. All he had were the verses he had committed into his heart, into his head. And my friend, this morning I wonder, if that's all the scripture you had, how much of the Bible would be planted in your head and your heart? Do you delight in God's word? Do you meditate upon his word day and night? Do you spend more time watching Netflix or do you spend more time memorizing scripture? Do you desire God's word more than you desire and delight in food and family and fellowship and even your children? Do you delight in God's word more than your desire for shopping or sex or sports? Do you delight in God's word? Is it the overwhelming passion of your life? Here in Psalm 1, the psalmist says, if you're going to have a happy life, if you're going to be a God-built disciple, then God builds his disciples by putting in them a hunger for the holy things of God so that you and I are dependent upon God's word. Which number is greater, the number of Facebook friends and Instagram followers you have, or the number of verses you've memorized in your spirit? You know, sometimes the appropriate answer is not amen. The only appropriate response is, oh my, And sometimes when we are confronted with the reality of our negligence, of our scripture reading, of our scripture memorization, of the fact that we don't devour God's word like we should or even like we once did. Sometimes we ought to respond in a way that says, oh my, if the response is something like this, oh well, then friend, you're worse off than you ever realize It's one thing to be convicted about negligence of the scripture. It's something totally worse to respond to that conviction by simply saying, oh, well, you and I need to say, oh, my, oh, my goodness, Lord, you are right. We need to be dependent upon your word. I've long been told that a Bible that's falling apart is usually owned by a person whose life is not. Here the psalmist tells us that if you're gonna have the happy life, the roadmap, is that you delight yourself in his word. And upon that word, upon that scripture, you meditate both day and night. Verse three, he is like a tree that's planted by streams of living water. This is the analogy. That the person who has the happy, blessed life of the Lord, the person that is dependent upon God's word, delighting in it both day and night, it's like a tree planted strongly by streams of living water. Listen to the triad description of this tree. It's a tree that produces fruit in season. It's a tree whose leaf does not wither. Is a tree that whatever he does prospers. Now I realize that this verse, like so many other verses, have been hijacked by prosperity heretics. Those individuals who say, as long as you have faith, God will give you health and God will give you wealth and whatever you do will be prosperous for you. Friend, that promise is never given in Scripture and it's not given in this third verse of Psalm 1 either. Let's just follow his analogy. He's saying the life that is rooted in the scripture is like a tree that's rooted by streams of water. So how do you know if an apple tree is prosperous? The answer? The apple tree produces apples. It bears fruit. Let me ask you another question. For whom are the apples produced? And the answer, for others. The apples are not produced for the apple tree. The apple tree does not benefit from the fruit that he produces. He doesn't consume any of the apples, right? So the fruit that you produce in your life, it's not for your consumption. It's not for you. It is for others. So we, if we're planted in the scripture, we're like a tree that's planted in living water. How do you know? What's the end result? What's the proof of it? We will bear fruit in season and our leaf will not wither. What does that mean? It simply means that there's no fall or winter season. There's always signs and symbols of life. The leaf never falls off the tree. And whatever you do is prosperous. How do you know if you are a prosperous person? You produce fruit. Who are you producing the fruit for? Others. It's never for yourself. So you ask the question, what's the fruit that's supposed to Come from my life being rooted and dependent upon the scripture. Let me just quickly give you three or four examples. In Romans chapter 1, the fruit is the fruit of conversion. The people that God has used you to lead unto him. So it's, it's evangelism. It's, it's the people that you share the good news of the gospel because what you have been taught, what you've learned through the life-giving word of God, you give it unto others. And as you give it unto others, some of them respond in faith. Those people that have been converted to faith in Jesus Christ because of your ministry, that's your fruit. Romans chapter 1. Also, the fruit is the fruit of your godliness, your godly character. That's Galatians chapter five. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. It's not nine different fruits. It's one fruit, but nine different characteristics of that fruit. So your godliness in your life, that's the fruit that you bear. And once again, that godliness is not merely for you, it's for others. Now, it is true that the fruit that you produce, that does mean loot. It does mean money. But according to Romans 15, it's only the money that you give to the work of the Lord. So when somebody says, if you have faith in God, you'll have a lot of money. That may or may not be true. But regardless, even all the money that you do have, that's not the fruit that's been given to you. The only fruit that's been given is that money that you take and you give it to the work of the Lord as you give faithfully to the work of the church and beyond. And then ultimately, in a place like Hebrews chapter 13, the fruit is the fruit of praise that comes from your lips. So when you worship the Lord, when you're driving down the road with Christian praise music on and you are lifting up holy hands, of course, keeping one hand on the wheel. But as you are loving and lifting up the Lord, you are bearing fruit of praise. As you even read the scripture, you are bearing fruit of praise because the fruit are the words that come from your lips. So the prosperous person that's rooted in the Scripture, dependent upon the Lord and His Word, upon which he meditates both day and night, the reason he bears fruit is for the benefit of others. What's some of the fruit you and I are supposed to bear? It's the conversion of souls. It's the godliness in your life and mine. It's the generosity that we demonstrate as we give our loot to the Lord. And it's the praise that we lift up to Him. The psalmist says in verse 4, this is not a description of the wicked. Not so the wicked. They're like chaff that the wind blows away. Now the author of our psalm is changing illustrations. He said the wise person that goes down the wise path that leads to life is like a tree that's planted by streams of living water. But the wicked person? the person that does not delight in God, the person that does not meditate upon his word, the one who has a sinful mind that's hostile towards the Lord, that wicked person is like chaff that the wind blows away. This second analogy is an illustration from the farming community. In those days, a threshing floor was built on a hill. It was simply a, a, a wooden floor on a hill where the wind could come and blow the chaff away the chaff was the useless inedible worthless part of the grain so the farmer would put all the grain on the threshing floor he would use a a pitchfork type tool called a winnowing fork and with that winnowing fork he would throw the grain into the air the heavy grain would fall back to the threshing floor That good heavy grain would then be bundled up and stored away in the barn. But the useless stuff, the chaff, it was so light, it was so worthless, it was so useless that the wind would just carry it away. It may carry it off the threshing floor or it may carry it just a little bit of a distance then it would fall uh, on the edge of the threshing floor. The farmer would then bundle that up and burn it. Why'd he burn it? because it was useless. It was of no benefit to anybody. The author of this psalm says that when you pursue happiness by your own definition, that when you pursue happiness down your own path or the path of the world, it will always result in chaff. It just produces uselessness. Useless happiness, useless meaning in life, useless fruit. It is useless. It cannot be used for anything. It. it is worthless. And so, what do you do with useless chaff? You burn it. It is not coincidence that John the Baptist in Matthew's gospel said that Jesus came with a winnowing fork in his hand, that Jesus came to separate the wheat from the weeds. He came to separate the good grain from the chaff. It's also no accident that Jesus referred to hell as Gehenna. Gehenna was the trash dump that every major city had. And that city would have a trash dump and it was constantly on fire. And what would farmers do with useless chaff? They'd throw it into the fire. And Jesus is saying that anyone who tries to pursue happiness outside of his path is as useless as chaff. And what's the end result of chaff? It is burned up in fire. So the psalmist here, he he says that the wicked person is useless as chaff. In verse 5, he simply says that the wicked will not be able to withstand the judgment of God. And sinners, they won't be able to intermingle with the assembly of the righteous. I love it when the scripture gets so basic, right? I mean, life is complex, humans are complex, you're complex, sometimes I'm complex, but here, let's just put the cookies on a bottom shelf. Many times the scripture declares of God, there is no middle ground. Either you are wise or you're wicked. Either Your sheep or goats. Either you are children of light or children of darkness. Either you are in Christ or you're out of Christ. There is no middle ground when it comes to God. So the wicked, they won't be able to withstand the judgment of God Almighty. And the sinners, those wicked sinners, they won't be able to stand in the assembly of the righteous because God is coming and one day he will separate the good guys from the bad guys. He'll separate the righteous from the unrighteous, the wise from the wicked. And for God, all of humanity falls in one of two categories. I made reference earlier that the scripture says in Romans chapter 8 that the sinful mind is hostile towards God. And there are people who want to push semantics on the scripture and say, well, look, I'm not hostile towards God. I'm just indifferent towards God. Do you know that in the Bible those two words are synonyms? If you're indifferent towards God, you are hostile towards God. And the Bible says that anybody who's not righteous is wicked. And the only way you, are, you and I are declared righteous is by belief upon the accomplished work of our Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. So the Bible simplifies the complexity of life. All people, all people, all the billions and billions of people, they fall in one of two categories. Either wise or wicked. Wicked. You can call them different words, but that's the answer of Psalm 1. Either you are wise and you're planted like a tree by streams of living water for you are rooted dependently upon God's word and you are blessed because of it or you are as useless as chaff and you're wicked and you're having your own definition of what happiness is for you and for you and for you and the end result is destruction. Now it helps sometimes when you and I put a name and a face together right I think that every family probably has an Uncle Joe Uncle Joe is uh, we describe him as a pretty good guy he would give you the shirt off his back if your car breaks down and you're looking for somebody to call to help you it's Uncle Joe Uncle Joe would drop anything and he would come and help you if you're stranded on the side of the road that's Uncle Joe He's a pretty good guy. That's how we talk of him. Um, He doesn't drink a lot. He doesn't smoke. He he doesn't chew. He doesn't, doesn't cuss a whole bunch. But he's not real interested in God. At Thanksgiving, he is more interested in the turkey and the dressing and the football than conversations of faith. In fact, whenever gospel conversations come up, Uncle Joe somehow finds his way out the front door just to get some fresh air, just to stretch, or, or maybe to go into the family room and just watch the football game. This is how we describe Uncle Joe. He's a pretty good guy, he just needs Jesus. You know what the Bible would say of Uncle Joe? He's wicked. Most um, workplaces, they have somebody like Sally. We describe her as sweet Sally. I mean, she's kind and uh, she's helpful. She doesn't hurt anybody, but she has no time for God. And she makes that abundantly clear in a very polite way. She's not rude about it. She just says, "I, I just don't think God exists. And and he has nothing to do in my life. Now, she's raising her boys to be good humans. Good according to her understanding of good. You don't say yes, ma'am, and no, ma'am. Yes, sir, and no, sir. I try to do the right thing. Go the extra mile. All those statements. And while you and I would call Sally sweet Sally, you know what the Bible would say of her? She's wicked. You say, wait a minute. Uncle Joe's not wicked. He just needs Jesus. Sweet Sally, she's not wicked. She just needs Jesus. I mean, wicked people, those are terrorists. Those are rapists. Those are murderers. Those are embezzlers. And yes, you're right. Those people are wicked. And so is Uncle Joe and so is Sweet Sally. Because according to Psalm 1, either you're wise or you're wicked. Either you're planted like a tree by streams of water As you're dependent upon his word, you meditate on it day and night. Or your life is wicked and useless as chaff. Verse 6, God watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Once again, it's one of two paths for one of two types of people. The righteous person goes down the righteous path. The wicked person goes down the wicked path and the righteous person has the promise that God watches over them. That phrase, watch over, means guard and protect. But the way of the wicked will perish. So what type of person are you and what path are you walking down? It was Alistair Begg who said, if you're not careful, you can walk away from Psalm 1 with nothing more than a moralistic message. He said, you know that moralistic message that just tells you, just just do better. Just try harder. It's the beginning of a brand new year. Just make some new commitments and stick to them, for crying out loud. Just pull yourself up by your bootstraps and just try harder. You can be a goodie because nobody wants to be a baddie. And according to Alistair begged. He said, you can walk away from Psalm 1 and you'll be tempted to think, you know what? If I do this, this, and this, I'll be a goodie. But if I do that, that, and that, I'll be a baddie. And nobody wants to be a baddie and everybody wants to be a goodie. And so I want to be a goodie and I want God to look at me as a goodie. So as long as I do these few things here in Psalm 1, I'll be a goodie in the eyes of God. The problem is we all know the man who walks out and says, I don't know what that was all about. But I can tell you this much. The man says, this past weekend, my wife told me on no uncertain terms I'm a baddie. I know I'm not a goodie. I know I can't live up to that. I know I can't be as good as God wants me to be. I'm a baddie, and my wife tells me I'm a baddie. My son tells me I'm a baddie. My daughter tells me I'm a baddie. My dog tells me I'm a baddie. Everybody tells me I'm a baddie. I know I'm a baddie. And Alistair Begg says, do you know anybody, do you know anybody who never walks in the counsel of the wicked? Do you know anybody who never stands in the way of sinners? Do you know anybody who has never sat in the seat of mockers? Do you know anybody who always delights himself in the law of God? Do you know anybody? Do you know anybody who always meditates upon God's word both day and night? Listen, friends, I know a lot of people who want to live like that. I don't know anybody who does live like that, save one. Alistair Begg says, Psalm 1 is like the wave at a football game. We've all been in the stadium, right? And the wave starts. It starts over there, and it makes its way towards you. And you think to yourself, here goes that stupid wave again. And it passes you the first time, and you think, that is the dumbest thing. I am not going to do that. And Alistair Begg says, after about two or three passes, you find yourself anticipating that, woo, and doing the wave and watching it go. He said, somebody had to start the stinking wave. Psalm 1 is all about the person who started it all. It's not all about you. It's really more about Jesus because Jesus never walked in the counsel of the wicked. He never stood in the way of sinners. He never sat in the seat of mockers, but his delight was always in the law of God. And upon that law, Jesus meditated both day and night. Not only is Jesus like a tree planted by streams of water, he was nailed to a tree for you and for me. Jesus died for all of your mistakes. Jesus died for all of my mistakes. He died in our place as our substitute. Not because he did anything wrong, no, he was the blessed one who gives the blessed life to anyone who will believe. And they took his dead body off the cross, placed him into a borrowed grave, rolled a stone in front of it. On the third day, Jesus burst forth from the tomb, victorious over sin, death, hell, and the grave. He's the one who gives us the roadmap to a happy life. He's the one that gives us the roadmap to a blessed life. He's the one that gives us the roadmap to an abundant life. He says we have to be dependent upon him and his word. This psalm, Is all about Jesus. It's not really all about you. Because you can't make yourself into a God-made disciple by yourself. You got to do it with the help of Jesus. Because Jesus helps you. He helps me to be the disciple that he wants us to be. And God never makes disciples contrary to being rooted in the scripture. So a God-built disciple is one who is dependent upon the Word. The Word made flesh and the Word in written form. We are dependent upon the Word. Jesus preached the greatest sermon ever preached. It's recorded for us in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. We call it the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus, at the end of that sermon, said, All of life is summarized in two roads. There are two roads with two gates. There is a wide road with a broad gate. And many are on it. And it leads to destruction. Do you know what those many are looking for? Happiness. They're looking for happiness. But they're on a broad road with a wide gate. And the end result is destruction. Because it's like useless chaff but there is a narrow road with a narrow gate and only a few find it. And what do they find? Eternal life. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one, no one comes to the Father except through me. A God-built disciple is one who is dependent Upon the Word, the Word made flesh, Jesus. The Word in written form, we call it the Bible. The hymn writer is exactly right. Trust and obey, because there's no other way. To be happy in Jesus, but to trust and obey. Friends, I ask you today, what road are you on? And what person would God describe you as? Are you the wise or the wicked? There is no middle ground. You can't straddle the fence on this one. You can't play on both sides of the street. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. As for me and my life, I will do my best to follow the one Who died for me to give me life eternal. So there is no disciple making apart from dependency upon God. That's really what I'm asking today. Are you dependent upon Christ and Him crucified? If you are, then praise the Lord. If you're not, then today can be the day when you get all things right and you switch lanes and you start walking on the right path through the power of Christ and Him crucified. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing a song. That's an opportunity for you to respond. Maybe you need to respond and accept Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. And you say, look, I'm searching for happiness in all the wrong spots. And I'm just wicked because I'm not fully sold out to the Lord. And today can be the day of your salvation, friend. All you got to do, you just come forward, take one of the ministers by the hand and say, hey, I need that Jesus in my life. Because I'm going down a path that will end in destruction. Today could be the, the day of your salvation. But maybe you're here and you're on the right path. You are righteous because of Christ, but maybe you just need to come and pray and say, God, please forgive me for being negligent to your word. I need your word like I need air to breathe. So help me to be dependent upon the word of God. Maybe you need to come and pray. Maybe you need to come and join the church. Maybe God is working in your life, and you need to come and say, God is calling me to full time Christian service. God's calling me to be a missionary, to take this good news across the street and around the world. Whatever God is asking you to do, won't you respond in obedience? Heavenly Father, we bow before you. Help us to be men and women, boys and girls who are dependent upon the word. Help us to be like a tree that's planted by streams of living water. Oh, Father, we pray that you will be honored and glorified. Move in this place. Help us to respond in obedience. And help us to be on the path of happiness that leads to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.